0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from John 15, 9-27. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. But now they have seen and have hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me since the beginning. This is the word of the Lord praise be to Christ.
1: Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Croft. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Christ Press Music Row, and welcome to you, those who've come in out of the cold into like a little refrigerator mini-fridge is what this feels like this morning. Uh, it's kind of chilly and yet nice to be together. Uh, so glad to have you with us, and if you ever want to grab some time together, let me know. I know I have some emails floating in the in the air with a few of you trying to grab some time and uh, figure out if we can get together and get coffee or lunch and uh, get to know each other better and, and help you plug further in the life of our church and into our city. I don't know if you've ever been to Washington, D.C. before. Uh, I took a trip uh, uh, last year, almost a year ago this time, and, uh, with my son as a, as a chaperone, and it was a really fun trip for me. I kind of geeked out on the having tour guides and learning and hearing everything. And uh, one of the places I really enjoyed was the uh, National Archives. If you've ever uh, seen it or know what it is, it actually is uh, the place where uh, three of our uh, major documents are housed. Uh, Declaration of Independence, uh, Bill of Rights, and uh, the Constitution of the United States are all housed within this. And it's an interesting building. If you walk in Um, You can kind of step, you kind of go through obviously security at the very front and there's more security and you kind of go through a maze of of ways to get into what seems almost like a bank vault um, and uh, of of gates and you step up almost steps like this and then a little further into the gated area, into even a deeper area and it's almost like a temple. Um, It's kind of amazing in, in and of itself and the documents are laid out um, it'd be like this, laid out all the way across the room. And so you, you you can kind of start, there's a little social, you know, movement there. You can kind of tell. You can walk up and look, but everybody kind of works from left to right, and they kind of look at the documents. And it's really amazing. And some of it, if you look at the documents, they're, they're starting to, to white out. So it, it, the ink is kind of disappearing and, and those kind of things. And uh, it was sad. This, this week, uh, there was somebody who um, vandalized, and I'm sure that, I, I can't imagine, I'm sure this happens from time to time, uh, vandalized, tried to vandalize some of the documents um, there. And, I, I, you know, somebody even, I think one of, when we were there, one of our students even asked, like, National Treasure, like, do the documents, like, go down underneath if there's a siren? They wouldn't answer. <laughs> They're like, no, we're not gonna tell you that. Um, but, you know, it, it, we're coming to a, pa- a place, and Kim was so sweet to read this passage because it's a lengthy one, but it really is considered uh, kind of the constitution, kind of the document, kind of the, the major treatise of love of what Jesus is giving, of what it means to be a disciple for us. Some have called it the Magna Carta, some have called it the, you know, the, the major constitution of what it means for us as Christians. But we're looking at a passage that unpacks that and what it means to be as we even saw last week as Jesus uses the metaphor of vine and branches being plugged in connected to Jesus that if you're connected to him there are a couple things that should occur. One is there should be love that really comes from being connected to Jesus between each other between the branches between the disciples between those who are followers of him and there's also going to be an expectation of hate. There's going to be those who do not like you and hate you and not because of you but because of me. That both the love that you have for one another and the hate that you will receive is on account of being connected and plugged into me. And this is the treatise for what it means to follow me. And he puts it in here, and as we've talked about, this uh, passage, it's in and of itself, is falling in a few chapters in John, where all the the Gospels talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. John takes this moment and this, what's called the Upper Room Discourse, to slow way down, to take his time to unpack further, what was the discussion in that room? What did it feel like? What did they sense? What did it even smell like? What did they taste? And even they encountered and had the the Lord's Supper together in that moment. And so as he unpacks this for us, we see what does it really mean, not just for those first century disciples, but for us now as disciples, and even you'll see as we continue on in this discourse, the pronouns even change from just them to us in our day. What does it mean for us to, if we really are connected to Jesus, truly connected to him, love one another and experience the hate from this world? And we're gonna unpack those two things. We're gonna unpack the two ways um, that Jesus lays this out, love and hate. What are those things and what do they look like for us as disciples? Love and hate. Verse 12, and it says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is actually something he brought up earlier in chapter 13. He talks about a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is over and over. And so when he says a new commandment or a commandment, He's not saying that that he's giving a new commandment to the Ten Commandments or he's he's changing something. He's saying this is the sum of what it means to care for one another and to love one another. It means means the reflection uh, that he demands when you obey and are connected to Jesus, what should come from that, this love. And I wanna unpack it for a second because when Jesus says commandment, in their ears, they would take that as a major thing. The other gospel writers do this as well and they take Jesus and you see in the first chapters, uh, maybe, maybe in Matthew particularly, unpacks it as Jesus is like the new lawgiver. He's the new Moses. He says things in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, right? And he's not redoing the commandments, he's not unpacking and saying, well, this is what it really means. He's saying, let me tell you the fulfillment of it. Tell you where it really comes from. And this is what it really means to live it out. And so when Jesus does this, he's saying this commandment, he's reminding him, I am the new commandment giver. I'm the, the new Moses, the, the new giver to you. And not only that, I'm the Lord who actually scribed it, who gave this, who provided this. To you, This commandment I give to you because this is what it means to be a part of me. And then he starts to unpack even further. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. You are my friends. Along the way in this discourse, if you've noticed, he, he describes the disciples in very unusual ways that a rabbi would, would do with someone following them. Typically a rabbi or a teacher would have followers, uh, they'd have disciples listening, hanging on every word, but Jesus takes it to a different level, as he does so often. In some places he calls them little children. He calls them dear friends here. He, He calls them unusual names that you wouldn't typically hear that gives you an idea that there's a relationship here that's further than just an informational transfer. It's not just Jesus hoping that they'll carry forward what he says, but they'll plug into him, connect to him so much that they know what it means to be loved by him so that this profound love emanates, that the source of their love is not from their own. Because when we first hear this, and I want to I say this, because when we, say, when we read this, that we love one another as Jesus has loved us. We can take that word love and it can become the most feeling, touchy-feely, emotional thing. We should just look past everything, just love one another. And it can be easy to use, especially in our culture and our day, to say, well, Christianity is just about love. Okay, what, what kind of terms are we defining? What does Jesus define love as? Is it something for us just to feel really good about each other? Because if you think about it, what he's dealing with with these people and these disciples here, as he's loving them all along the way, they just can't seem to get it. Everything he lays down, they kind of grasp and then they're like, wait, wait, wait. Could you help us understand what you mean by the fig tree here? Could you help us understand the parables? You said you're going to the cross, that's weird. Why would you say that? You know, over and over, Jesus is having to explain to them what this means. What is his relationship to them? And it's not (laughs) touchy-feely. It's not an information transfer. It's a deep, profound, sacrificial love. It's one that he says, greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Who lays down his life? It is Christ. And not just in his taking up the cross. It's easy for us to look at love as okay, simply this is I'm willing to put my life on the line for somebody. But Jesus doesn't just say that. He doesn't just say laying down your life and being willing to look at someone and say, you know, I I would die for that person. That is, Quite amazing, that is something to say. But Jesus, when he says to lay down your life is included in not just laying down your life in terms of maybe risking it, but actually what does it mean to live your life for that person sacrificially? A lot of times when I do weddings and talk about this in premarital counseling, I talk often with a couple about Okay, it's one thing for you to love someone so much and you go, I love this person so much, I would do anything for them, I'd die for them. You go, well, hold on, take the first part of that. Yeah, maybe you might die for them. You You love them that much, but would you live for them? Would you lay your life down sacrificially before them to humble yourself? to do what it takes to care and love for them in ways that maybe you wouldn't do because you see what they do with it. (laughs) This is what Jesus is talking about, laying your life down. This love in this commandment is one that is so profound that it means that our love, if we understand what Jesus, how he really loves us, is that it's not just his death, it's his life, death, and resurrection. It's the whole thing. Because when Jesus was born, and we talk about this at Christmas and we look at it, and usually it's sweet and sentimental, but what he does by putting himself into flesh, into one of the most traumatic moments, which is considered birth, into this world, and then to to live as a child, to be raised up. I mean, you get, we get glimpses of his childhood. He gets left behind, <laughs> has a home alone moment in, in the gospels where his parents right, look up and he's not in the caravan, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, where's our son?" And they go back and he's teaching. They have other moments where he begins teaching as an older adult, right, before, right before, as his ministry begins, and they say things like, "He's out of his mind. He's crazy." Jesus endured what family life was. He endured work took on those moments, lived in that world with us. Why? So that he could take on every form and facet of sin and death within our lives, not just the moment of death on the cross, which he does do, and it pinnacles in that all to go to resurrection and what? His death doesn't stop it. He continues to live for us. Think about this for a second. His resurrection and when he comes from the dead is Jesus continuing to live in that love for us so that death can't even keep his love from us. The love of God in Jesus. It's incredible that even right now the sacrifice of Christ, his laying his life down is purposefully going up for us. I've been reading um, through the Bible. You know, you do the reading through the Bible in a year and uh, maybe some of you've done that before. You can do it on a phone or there are a lot of ways. If you ever want to do that, talk to me. Uh, I'd love to encourage you about that. And yes, I've had my moments where I'm like, oh, I'm behind or whatever. It's not like I'm perfect all the time with my readings. But I've been reading in uh, Exodus and Leviticus, those books that you kind of go, another bull and dove sacrificed. I'm done. You know, like what's next? And you know what it says over and over? It's interesting, especially if you listen to it. Sometimes I, I listen to these passages. It'll say the aroma, the aroma, the aroma, the aroma up to the, Lord Jesus, uh, up to the Lord, uh, Lord's nostrils, that the aroma of the sacrifice goes up. And one of the things that's incredible about what and who Jesus is, not only in his life, his death, but also his resurrection is that There's an aroma of his love for us in the sacrifice of Christ. And this is what the the New Testament picks up, that why do we no longer have to sacrifice animals? Because the aroma of Jesus' sacrifice is consistently in the nostrils of our Heavenly Father. Right now in this very moment, whatever shame, guilt, sin thing that's going on in your life, in your brain, in your heart, whatever you're thinking of, there has never been a moment where the aroma and the smoke from that sacrifice of Jesus has not gone into the Father's nostrils. That love that you are living in is because of him laying his life down. If you wanna know what it means to be connected to Jesus, it means you have a sacrifice of love in him, that there is not a moment where the pleasing aroma of sacrifice of Jesus's life being laid down is never not in the Father's nostrils. He is consistently smelling the pleasant smell of grace towards you because of Christ. And that's how Jesus can turn to them and even say to them, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Not only is it sacrificial, but it, it's revelatory, right? What's different about Christianity? is that Jesus doesn't come with teachings, information transfer, and say carry this forward, make sense of this. He makes himself known, and he makes his Father known. Notice, this is a package deal. (laughs) It's not just Jesus making himself known, he makes his Father known, he reveals himself. And the whole purpose of us being in friendship with Jesus is that we would be known and he know us. It's profound. I, I bet when they were sitting here hearing this, it was in, insane. I, did, uh, I was reading at some point about um, friendship, particularly in, in kind of, gosh, those you know, years and what friendship was like. But if you look at kind of Greco-Roman understanding of friendship in um, in ancient Greece particularly, friendship was understood in kind of like a number of categories Uh, and this was not one of them. One of the categories was um, pleasure that we just, friendship is about pleasure, enjoying uh, contingent feelings, that man, it's kinda like that guy makes me so uh, laugh so hard when I'm around him, that, that girl is so great to be around. It's just the, this, this enjoyment is what friendship is about. Another category is utility. What can I get out of this friendship? Kind of cost-benefit analysis, right? Maybe you have somebody in your life that you feel like that moment of where you want to have a friendship with them, but you feel like it's kind of always new sports, weather, business, kind of what's next. Maybe working friendships. You have this certain cause that you're going together. It's utility. Another one is good, that each friend has, um, wishes good for each other. Right? You just kind of hope that there's good for each other. What this friendship that Jesus is talking about is different. It's being known. And if there's something that hits really at the core of our loneliness, and where we want to to be understood the most, it's being known. We have a lot of people around us that can tell us how they care about us. But when someone really reveals their heart to you and lets you close to them, and sometimes you may have experienced, I've experienced this, if I've done that or someone does that to me and all of a sudden then, the next time you see them they feel kind of like they're, they've drawn back in their shell. It's because they've recognized they've actually shown you themselves. That's revelation. You know what Jesus does? He calls us friends. He calls the disciples friends because he's not hiding from them. The good news of the gospel Christianity, following Christ, being connected into him, means there's not something hidden. This is not something you have to unlock or figure out. He has come to you. As he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It's not just a predestination phrase. It's an intimate, loving, relational phrase. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit but here's the thing if we're going to be connected to Jesus in that way connected to him in a way that really deeply shows us how is our love for one another supposed to be different it's not just going to warrant a difference in the way that we actually love one another it's also going to it's also going to warrant some hate it's going to bring in hate it says if the world hates you know that it hated me before it hated you if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There's a lot we could, we could do with this. and I think, but, but the main thing is, <laughs> that I want to unpack is what does it mean, hate and world, right? What does it mean that the world hates us? Immediately, I think for many of us, especially in this time and, and age, there may be one of two ways we think of this. When we think of the world hating us, uh, there may be some people in this room typically that go to, yeah, they hate Jesus. It becomes a little more of that culture wars of, you know, I mean, this world is crazy. It's just, it's going to hell in a hands basket. It's getting worse and worse and we can go in that direction. Another side of it is where we can go, okay, well, I, I, <clears throat> I know that I really, if I can just have the majority of people like me, <laughs> if I can have the majority, now there are gonna be people that hate me and I just don't, I don't fit with them. But if I can actually get as many people to like me as possible, and we really get worried and, and, and drawn up into the like being relevant and not awkward and really like working at that, then maybe the hate will be reduced. Maybe we can avoid that. But what Jesus is talking about is a lot bigger. What he's talking about is both being an issue because either one of those things, either direction, and and maybe maybe other directions than just those two, but if we go either one of those directions, we're missing what it means to be connected to Jesus. Both of those. Let's define it real quick, let's think about this. What is world here? World isn't just like, the planet or just out there. The world is actually a system. And what's being defined here is a deep, profound system. It's it's a system that has characteristics, particularly in John's Gospel, when he uses the term world, and he uses it a lot. What he means is there's two characteristics. One is the characteristic of pride, that there's pride that I've got this, I'm good, (laughs) I'm right. And this can come from an us versus them kind of mentality. This can kind of be that kind of like, I got this. I don't, I don't, I, it, them. The other one is um, covetousness or desire. Now think about that. That I need to have everything right with me. You hear that? So it's not just I'm right, but it's like I need everything right with me. And both of those are the two main rails that this system works off of. And here's how it gets to, (laughs) here's how it gets to, and this is really important for us to understand because unpacking what it means to live in this world and receive hate is really important for us as Christians. That if you're connected to Jesus, that you understand what it means because hate here from the world isn't just out there in a system that typically goes against God. It can be even be in institutions, even religious ones, that claim Christianity and yet push the envelope of hating who Jesus really is. I'll give you an example of this. <laughs> when I was at Vanderbilt, And this is one that may stir some things in here, so we can talk about it later, I'm I'm totally willing to hear. When I was a a campus minister at Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt University went through a major issue called a non-discrimination policy. Some of you remember that, some of you may be feeling the after effects of that, I was actually a chaplain and a campus pastor during that time. And what was very interesting to me um, while I was there, this is years and years and years ago, um, was the, the, the ways that this kind of played itself out. Because there were organizations like our own who, who proclaimed the gospel, read from the Bible, uh, had student ministry on campus. I was also a chaplain, so I got to be in some little more inner working of meetings. And so you had a lot of people looking in where they were saying, hey, a lot more clamping down from the university on specific religious groups on campus. And so because of that, there were a lot of people coming to me and yelling in onto the campus saying, hey, that big bad liberal university can't speak down to Christian organizations like it's doing. So I had a lot of people coming to me and saying, hey, are you okay? Is everything okay? Was that doing it? And a lot of times i was saying, yeah, it's really hard, but we're navigating this. But what it looked like, it was what? It was an us versus them. Is that group over there doing this to us? And what was interesting was how much the university was speaking into our group too, that we were also discussing that. I would have to go into the dean's office over and over and over and say to them after a newspaper article came out or something else and say, hey, let me describe to you again. And I did this with one or two other people countless times hey, can we have an appointment to sit down and let me talk to you about what this really means. What's really, what are we really doing in our group when we talk about the good news? And, and what I recognized over the, that time was, two major halves. One half is easy to recognize. One was, oh man, the university's clamping out there saying, you can't do this. You can't have registered organization if you do this and be Christian and all these kind of things. And me going in and speaking to them. And guess what? When we met with them, they said to us certain things like, hey, you know what? Y'all are the only group that has ever met with us. Now that's not to hold me up, this is an interesting observation that no one else is meeting with them willing to talk to them about what's going on. But you know it was on the other side? So that's one system, right? That we typically think of as a world hating Christianity and those who connected to Jesus, guess what the other one was? My name over and over and RUF over and over and Vanderbilt RUF over and over in the newspaper and in other places, Tennessean and other places, with people attacking it, and guess who they were? Other Christians. Calling us not Christians. So, and guess what? Guess where I (laughs) was, I was encouraged, I went into their offices too. Not because I'm better or great or anything else, but because I recognize there's something else going on here. It's not just the system we're used to of some, okay, it's Christianity versus all this and there's a culture war here. No, 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 it's way bigger. There are a lot more systems that hate connection to Jesus than we think. Because what was the subject over here? It wasn't Jesus. It was more about, was it conservative versus liberal? traditional versus progressive. And this may be pushing some buttons for many of you in this room, but I'm telling you, this is really important for us to recognize. Jesus is coming to preach not about the system that he has as a third way. He's saying, what? What does he say to Nicodemus in John 3, 16? We talked about it even last week. For God so loved the world. That what did he do? He sent his only begotten son. How does God react to the hate? See, typically our reaction to the hate is we get in our corner, or we think we have the right spot, or we hate him back. What does Jesus do with that? He says this, verse 24, if I had not done Among them, the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. It was baseless. Because it's connected to Jesus. Because what Jesus was doing, what was he doing? He was loving the world. We need to be willing to spot in us, where do we lean toward a system that may take us away from being connected to Jesus, even if it thinks it is? Because if we find ourselves hating people and thinking Jesus hates the people that we hate, we are missing what Jesus says. This is a hard one for all of us. It's hard for me. This should be hard for you. But I'll guarantee you, you come to a table like this and it will provoke every system that you think you plug into other than Jesus. If you wanna know what this table does, it is the commandment of love. This is not my blood and body, this is not yours. This is Jesus's body and blood. And to come to this table means you're proclaiming something that you can't do. That only in Christ can you know what it really meant to take this table and to know what it means to be a friend and to be next to somebody rubbing shoulders, when you take this, you're saying, I get, now I'm not saying we all get it. (laughs) None of us have our arms wrapped around it, but that we're coming to this table, we apprehend it. That we love, we know the love of Jesus, that he laid his life down so that we can actually leave this table and do the same. And guess what? We can leave this table and endure hate and even love those who hate us. Just as our Heavenly Father does. If that was the way it was, he wouldn't have sent Jesus at all. Or Jesus wouldn't have gone in front of those who hated or even spoken to those who hated or even to Pharisees, guess what? A third of the New Testament is written by somebody who hated Jesus. Guess who that was? Paul. Paul, the apostle, hated Jesus. And God turned his life upside down. God does that to anybody. Because his love permeates. Let that be what transforms us. To love one another and to live in a world that does have real hate, whether in an institution or out. Let's do that. Amen. Let's stand together.